Hi, and thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Today, Russia has long used disinformation and conspiracy to great effect. So why is it losing the information war over Ukraine and still trying to sell a story even some of its own people aren't buying? With more than a million Ukrainians having already fled the fighting in their country, we speak with a Vancouver woman who escaped war in Syria about how difficult it is to leave home and what it's like to try to build a new life in a new land. But first, the shelling by Russia of Europe's largest nuclear power plant in southern Ukraine is being called a reckless act that could threaten the whole continent. Why would Moscow choose such a potentially destructive target? Just when you thought things couldn't get any more alarming in Ukraine, this evening they did. The Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, the largest of its kind in Europe, was reportedly on fire after attacks by Russian troops, the mayor of the nearby town of Ernogodar said. Just to give you some context, that is the largest um, nuclear power plant in Europe. Uh, it certainly is the largest in Ukraine. Now, tonight, the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Org- Association, says there's been no change in reported radiation levels at the power plant site. Still, it's being reported as a shockingly reckless and violation of multiple agreements. The member states of the IAEA, IAEA rather, unanimously agreed years ago that attacking a nuclear power plant quote, constitutes a violation of the principles of the United Nations Charter, international law, and the statutes of the agency. That according to Director General Raphael Grossi. Just to point out, uh, for some context here, so the Zaporizhia nuclear power station is in Erdogodar, as I said. It's the largest plant in Europe, among the 10 largest in the world. It generates nearly half of the country's electricity derived from nuclear power and more than a fifth of the total electricity generated in the entire country. Six reactors there total. The first five were brought on between 85 and 89, 1985 and 1989, and the sixth was added in 1995. So again, tonight reports that Russian troops had fired artillery on the actual nuclear power plant. Uh, There were reports of fire in one facility, a fire in one facility, one that was not being used right now, uh, and also that those trying to fight the fire were being prevented from doing so because of ongoing fighting. Well, let's try and clarify all of this. It's still uh, being reported as we speak. Uh, There has been uh, pleas from the Ukrainians in particular um, saying to stop. (laughs) Obviously, Ukraine's foreign minister, Dmitry Kuluba, said on Twitter that Russian forces were firing on all sides, and he warned that an explosion there would be 10 times larger than Chernobyl and called on the Russians to establish a security zone and allow firefighters through to the plant. Joining me now is M.V. Ramana. He's a professor at Simon's Chair in Disarmament, Global and Human Security at UBC's School of Public Policy and Global Affairs. He also studies the risks and consequences of nuclear weapons and accidents at nuclear reactors. Thanks for being here tonight. Thank you. I should put that back into context. So we saw lots of reports and some images of a fire at this massive Zaporizhia nuclear power station. Um, Just your first reaction to, to seeing those images. So my first reaction is one of shock. Uh, This is not something we have ever envisioned seriously. Um, There have been uh, attacks in the past on uh, nuclear reactors. Um, For example, the uh, Israeli attack on Iraq's Osirak plant. Uh, But those were really small reactors uh, and uh, meant for trying to produce, uh, you know, for research reactors. This is a large nuclear plant 
as you rightly mentioned, it is producing a very substantial fraction of Ukraine's nuclear electric, uh, electricity in general. And uh, we've never seen anything of this sort, a deliberate attack on a nuclear plant clearly intended to do to damage it. So I'm very shocked. I, I mean, right now, we know we've heard from the IAEA that there are no reports of elevated ra- radiation in the area. I guess that would be a good early sign, at least. Yes and no. So there are two uh, aspects to think about here. One is that, uh, you know, when a nuclear reactor is operating uh, and uh, for whatever reason, there's an attack that just breaches the containment, breaches the all the all of the protective um, uh, layers uh, in, uh, outside the reactor core, then you could imagine a huge uh, uh, explosion, sort of like what happened in Chernobyl. But that's not, I think, the more likely scenario. Uh, the more likely uh, or the, the concern is about a scenario that's much more likely, which is that even if the reactor is shut down, uh, the, the fuel rods, which are producing all the energy inside a nuclear power plant, the fuel rods have to be cooled. Uh, and that's because even if the reactor is shut down, the radioactive uh, fission products which are sitting inside those fuel rods are continuously emitting radiation. And it will heat up the, the fuel. And this is why in, even in regular nuclear plants, after the fuel has been uh, inside the reactor after a while, it is taken out when it ceases to be able to generate enough uh, fission reactions. And it is kept under water for it to cool down. Right? Uh, the uh, the in, a, in an actual operating reactor, there is no water except to, except what is used to take the heat away from there and drive a, a turbine. Now, for whatever reason, if that uh, the power to keep pushing the water through the reactor uh, fails, then there'll be no way to cool the fuel that is inside the reactor. And this can happen because unlike uh, other power plants, a nuclear plant actually is dependent on other sources of power to be able to drive that coolant through the reactor. And uh, that, in, in such an attack, there's a danger that we might lose cooling. I mean, I mean, I think once we've seen, even when you shut it down, uh, as you mentioned, it needs to be continuously cooled. Was that not what we saw in Fukushima? Exactly. So in the Fukushima case, the reactors were shut down in the sense that they stopped generating electricity as soon as the earthquake hit the plant. Uh, but uh, the subsequent tsunami basically was when the plant lost cooling because the uh, the external sources of power were cut down due to the earthquake. Uh, external sources of power meaning the electrical grid. And then the internal sources of cooling were diesel generators which got flooded by the tsunami. Now, in this case, the an- analogy would be that, you know, in, in principle, my own guess is that the reason Russia is even uh, attacking, Russian forces are attacking this plant, is to try and destabilize the Ukrainian grid. If some of these nuclear reactors were to be shut down, then the grid might become unstable and might crash. And that may be something that the Russians want to have see happen. And if that happens and there's an attack that actually uh, damages the diesel generators in the plant, then there'll be no way to cool the spent fuel. And that will, that's a scenario that will take a few days to develop. So this is why when you say that there is no higher uh, levels of radiation right now, that itself is not sufficient to, uh, to conclude that the danger is not there. 
Now, I know that these plants are built to withstand a certain amount of attack, uh, obviously. Uh, is it possible that the plants themselves are, are fairly, that fairly well protected? Yes and no. I mean, uh, you know, as you said, the, the, they can protect themselves against a, a, a missile or something trying to go into the reactor and do something there. But there are two issues. One is the loss of cooling that I was just describing. That's a much harder thing to protect against. All you can do is to try and keep duplicate or redundant sources of cooling. That's why nuclear plants in any case have diesel generators. But it is quite possible that the same event that leads to all of these problems can, uh, can destroy those sources of cooling as well. Right? Uh, so that's one issue. The second is there's also another source of radioactivity, uh, potential radioactive release. That's the, uh, the fuel ponds the, where the spent fuel is stored. And if for whatever reason the water in those pools were to drain away either completely or partially, that could also result in the, the temperature of the, uh, the spent fuel that has been removed from the reactor uh, uh, sort of going up and eventually that melts or uh, catches on fire. And right. these, uh, this spent fuel is stored not inside the reactor containment building typically, but in other structures. And that was another thing we saw in the case of Fukushima, where there was a near uh, accident of that sort. Now, we don't know exactly what's happening. We don't want to be overly alarmist, obviously. Um, Absolutely. Clearly, this is something that is that is dangerous, <laughs> to yes. say the very least. The other thing I was really curious about is that if staff can't work at the plant because they're under attack and they mm -hmm. have to leave, these aren't really the sorts of facilities you can just sort of, you can't walk away safe, so to speak. No, you cannot. Exactly. This is where the requirement for continuous cooling comes in, right? Uh, and staff literally cannot walk away from there. Yes. And if so the Russians yeah. prevent people from going in or uh, try to force the people who are going, uh, who are inside there and force them to leave, then that's definitely a bad situation. Uh, Professor Ramada, what would you be looking for now in the next 24 hours as far as, I mean, it, w we understand the fighting continues, but that is not confirmed. We don't know exactly what's happening in Zaporizhia right, right now. Uh, right. But what will you be looking for in the next 24 hours? I hope that the, you know, the fighting stops and Russia ceases, the, uh, the Russian forces cease to continue this attack and allow the plant operators to maintain the plant in the safest possible way. Because, I mean, let's be honest, this is not far from the Russian border. So any sort of accident at that plant would have, you know, widespread, obviously, impacts. We remember Chernobyl in 1986. Yes. We are, certainly remember Fukushima in 2011 and Three Mile Island many, many years ago in 79. Uh, but this would have an impact on Russia as well. So it seems uh, it's hard to describe what, what the intent would be. I mean, That's you right. guessed earlier, but yeah. Yeah, that's that's definitely true. Uh, you know, it is possible that you know uh, the kind of delusions that might be driving Putin are letting him imagine that the radioactivity would not be blown towards Russia but away from Russia and maybe into EU or something of that sort. Who knows what's going on in his mind? Right. So in the next 24 hours, what, what should we be looking out for? The fighting should stop, but is there anything on the ground? I mean, obviously, the, I, the International Atomic Energy Agency are in close contact with officials at the plant. They're in close contact with the Ukrainian government. Uh, I think what they're asking for now is, is, is a clear path to allow 
all kinds of security staff to get in there and make sure everything's okay. That's right. Yes, I think that's what we would like to see. And I would like to, I hope to hear from officials at the plant uh, saying that everything is under control. That's what I would really be looking for. I'll just share with you what the IAEA had tweeted in the last little while. Uh, They were aware of reports of shelling in Zaporizhia. They were in contact with Ukrainian authorities about the situation. Um, The Director General Rafael Grossi spoke with Ukraine's PM Denis Shmigo and with the Ukrainian nuclear regulator and operator about the serious situation at the plant. Appeals for halt of use of force and warns of severe danger if reactors hit. And again, uh, the regulator telling the IAEA that there's been no change in reported uh, radiation levels uh, at the plant itself. Yeah, I mean, I'm glad that there is no radiation levels reported at this plant, but I don't think that's at this point sufficient to be uh, completely calm about this. All right. Uh, MV Romana, thank you so much for your insight on this tonight, uh, on this breaking news story. Thank, thank you very much. And let's all hope for the best. Well, much has been made over the years of Russia's abilities to win information wars or to at least destabilize other countries. We've talked about it for the 2016 election in the US, the Brexit referendum in England, or in the UK rather, uh, or in England. But not this time. If anything, the Kremlin continues to try to sell a story that many of its own people aren't even buying about the war in Ukraine. But President Vladimir Putin, of course, not one to change his tune, is he? Well, joining me now is Scott Radnitz. He's a professor professor of Russian and Eurasian studies in the Jackson School of International Studies at the University of Washington and author of a book called The Politics of Conspiracy in Russia and the Post-Soviet Region. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, Thanks for having me. I guess to start just with many developments in Russia today, um, in, including many rumors of, of martial law, from where you sit, what's happening in, in, in Russia right now? What's changing and how fast is it changing? Well, the Kremlin is faced with this problem uh, that they've been deceiving most uh, the po- whole population about uh, the purpose of this uh, war and the way it's being fought. Um, officially, uh, media within Russia are not allowed to call this a war. The official name for it is a special military operation. And um, the Kremlin was signaling from the beginning uh, that this would not be a long drawn out conflict, that uh, Ukrainians would, would mostly um, with, um, with, the, with the operation that was intended to quote unquote rescue uh, Russians in the eastern part of Ukraine in, in the Donbass. And that left the public pretty unawares of what was going on, unless they were following Western media pretty closely. Now the problem is this war has dragged on. There have been a lot more military, Russian military casualties than were did. Uh, only one major city uh, has been captured in Ukraine. Uh, and um, despite lots of anticipation and speculation, the military has yet to capture Kiev or uh, the second largest Kiev. So the problem uh, seeing Putin now is the population is starting to get wind of what's going on uh, through social media, through friends and relatives, uh, by phone, from travel. And uh, there's going to be discontent. There have been large protests on the streets. And as more people also find that um, uh, they're personally going to be harmed by the, the collapsing economy, uh, there's going to be discontent. 
So it wouldn't be that surprising then if the government uh, took the next step, turned the screws um, by possibly um, uh, announcing uh, the implementation of martial law, or at the very least going a lot further in limiting uh, the ability of Russians to access information on the internet. We've already seen almost every remaining quote-unquote independent news agency in Russia shut in the last 24 hours. There's been laws brought in as well. What kind of impact is that having? Right. So just in the last 24 hours, the last remaining independent radio station, Echo of Moscow, and um, the last remaining independent television station, TV Rain, uh, were shut down um, by by orders from above. Uh, Most Russians get their news from state TV. So the kinds of people that were watching these independent channels are are, um, liberal, independently minded, educated people who certainly would be against this this war to begin with. So it's not like um, uh, Putin's base, um, right? People outside of the major cities. uh, We're getting their news from these independent uh, channels to begin with. But it does indicate that the trend is um, toward closing off Russia from outside information. Which moves it further further towards being a totalitarian state the way we see in many other areas. I mean, this is a complete information control system, is it not? Well, this is what the Kremlin would like. Um, Again, when you wage an unpopular war and people are feeling the effects at home, the government would like the population to be a captive audience that only gets its information from the government. However, we don't live in the 1950s. Russians have smartphones. Almost everybody is on the Internet. People still have telephone connections and can speak to their relatives abroad. So the Kremlin is going to find it much more challenging now to prevent accurate information from, from getting through, from getting through um, this information barrier that it's trying to build. And yet we saw Vladimir Putin today, again, repeating the same lines about the intent of the war and in his words, the success of the war. He's repeating these same words. I guess those go, that's purely for state television consumption. There is clearly um, this, this cognitive dissonance uh, between what, the government is telling its people and what people are able to see with their own eyes. If they're able, um, again, if they're able to acquire that information, a government has not deviated from its line that this is not actually a war and um, it's not going to be that, um, not going to take that long. And it's not going to be that bloody, a quick military operation um, that, that is intended again to rescue um, Ukrainians. How, how Aurelian is that? Um, It's sticking to the plan. And, uh, it may not work. Um, I mean, I think the facade is already cracking. People are able to access information, and it's going to be harder and harder um, to, for the Kremlin to tell people not to believe their lying eyes. Yet this is a tactic that has worked, that has been successful for the Kremlin for years. What's made this particular week different from many of the conflicts of the past? Well, authoritarian regimes have a variety of levers they can pull, and propaganda is, of course, uh, an important instrument of power, but ultimately, regimes rely on repression, the use of force and the threat of force to deter people from protesting and from speaking out. And as the media uh, loses its effectiveness over time, because people are, um, not everybody, but more and more people are going to start doubting what they're seeing on state TV, the government will then turn increasingly toward um, using violence against its own people. Uh, There's a lot of people who are in in Russia who are against the war, um, who 
would go out and protest if it were a democracy, but they're afraid for their well-being, for their families, for their jobs, and therefore they stay silent. And that's part of what allows authoritarian regimes to keep on functioning. The oddity, of course, being if you think back to the 80s, this is exactly how the Soviet Union got into so much trouble when people simply stopped believing what, was being to, what they were being told. Right. And what led to the collapse uh, was the government loosing, loose, loosening its restrictions on, on people's ability to organize and speak out freely. And when people understood that that was possible, they started to do so. And that led, um, that was the first of the, of the dominoes uh, that ultimately led to the um, government losing control of the country and the country falling apart. How effective has it been that the Ukrainian president speaks Russian, that a lot of Ukrainians speak Russian and are able to communicate directly with people inside Russia? This is one of the idiosyncrasies of this particular conflict. Russia and Ukraine are so close and so similar in, in so many ways. Uh, many people on both sides of the border um, have relatives. Um, they travel there frequently. Uh, it, it's almost like a, a, if the U.S. and Canada had a war. It would be, it would be ridiculous, right? It's, it's like um, Russians are attacking their own family. And this complicates uh, the ability of, of the Russian military to keep up its morale because if they're being told they're fighting an enemy, but then they see these cities in Ukraine that they're so familiar with, that they may have traveled to, that they might have relatives living in, um, it might be hard for them to, to carry out um, the orders, right? To, to shoot people, right? To, to bomb buildings or bomb churches. Um, this is a, really um, a, a surreal event that's going on right now. And uh, again, I think, um, I think Putin may have miscalculated how difficult this would be to carry out. I was going to ask you that because this is not an unsophisticated government at times. They know the, brute, the, you know, the power of brute force and the power of, of disinformation. Where do you think the misstep was here then? It's always hard to know, um, right, when the initiative for this came from one person, and that's Vladimir Putin. And scholars and uh, armchair psychologists have been trying to analyze this man uh, for over 20 years. He's now been in power for 22. We don't know exactly what drives him. Um, it's not a secret that he feels like Russia has been disrespected since the end of the Cold War. It's not a secret that he detests NATO um, and has railed against its expansion. Uh, but in the past few months, uh, people who, who've observed him more closely think that he's he's kind of um, he's been isolated. He's been detached uh, from the ability to get good information. He's gotten angrier, possibly more paranoid. And uh, if you watch his speech, either in the original Russian or, or translation that he made uh, right before he announced this war, he does look like a really ang angry, isolated, and, and possibly uh, paranoid person. Uh, if he's calling the shots, um, then he may not have made you know, a, a careful calculation of the costs and benefits of starting this conflict. I'm back with Scott Radnitz, professor of Russian and Eurasian studies in the Jackson School of International Studies at the University of Washington and author of The Politics of Conspiracy in Russia and the Post-Soviet Region. You know, they say that always said that, you know, the first victim of war is truth. Um, that's probably been the case in Russia for quite a long time. Uh, how important is conspiracy in all this? Because we've already seen conspiracy theories flying around. Uh, about the causes of this war, or at least why this war is being fought by the Russians? Conspiracy theories are a major part of 
the justification not only for this conflict, but for uh, a lot of Russian foreign policy actions um, going back uh, probably to the 2008 invasion of Georgia. A lot of members of Putin's generation uh, from who, who came of age in the Cold War, and especially people in the security services, people who were loyal to the Soviet Union until the end, came out of the Cold War with this idea the end of, of the Cold War and the collapse of the Soviet Union were unfair and were the product of uh, Western duplicity and conniving and, uh, and duplicity by, by Gorbachev himself for, um, for giving in and negotiating with the West instead of uh, cracking down at home and threatening the West. So there's long been this narrative uh, among members of the Russian elite, especially in the security forces, that the West is still out to weaken Russia, uh, to keep it down, to make sure that it can't play any role in the world as a great power anymore. And it is argued that the expansion of NATO all the way up to Russia's borders is part of that plan to keep Russia in a box, essentially. And so this narrative has been circulating for, for a long time. It's out in the open. Uh, it's on state TV. And there are, there are smaller versions of this narrative. Anytime there's a mass protest in a country uh, that's mostly pro-Russian, the Kremlin claims that these protests must have been incited um, by the West and the protesters are paid or the CIA is involved. There's some variation of that. And this has been out there for a very long time. So by the time we get to 2021 and 22, uh, the propaganda that the West is out to get Russia has has been around for a long time and, and Russians may not all believe it, but they've heard it. It's familiar to them. And so when Putin now has to justify uh, this current invasion, he can latch on to that existing narrative that everybody's heard and then uh, argue that, well, it's time for Russia to do something about it, right? The West is trying to, to harm us, keep us weak. And now we have to fight back or, or something even worse will happen. That's certainly leads one to believe that they're not in a position to step away from this, to back off, given that that's the narrative they put out there, that it's essentially about Russia's survival, as opposed to bullying a smaller neighbor. This is correct. Putin has not left himself an off-ramp. As it's framed, this war in Ukraine is existential for the survival of Russians. Putin has said in the last week, we have no choice. We had to do this. And when the war is discussed in those terms, it's really hard to imagine what kind of, of compromise could be reached with Ukraine or, or, or with uh, Western powers. Um, he's, by doing this, he's also signaled the resolve. He's, he's shown the West that he really means business and he's not going to stop. And that means at this point, at least a week into the war, it's really hard to see how this ends uh, short of more, uh, more and more bloodshed. What have you been seeing on social? I, mean, I don't know how closely you're following Russian social media these days, but with all the sanctions coming in, with lineups at, at ATMs, with mortgage rates skyrocketing, the ruble collapsing, what has been the reaction within the country? And is it enough to persuade the Kremlin to change gears? The propaganda that's coming out in Russia, even that's circulating on social media, mostly begins through state channels, through uh, official speeches, through state TV, uh, and through um, pro-Kremlin um, websites and television stations like RT and Sputnik, which also broadcast abroad. 
so the um, then the government uh, has pro Kremlin proxies who spread this through social media. Sometimes they use bots, which are um, which are auto- automatic ways of spreading uh, social media memes, and that's how the, the message is getting out. Uh, I don't think though that. Um, people are necessarily finding that very convincing because uh, as I mentioned, right, what it's the same message they're getting on TV and it's at odds with, with reality. But what I expect to see more and more now is now that sanctions are taking hold and it's pretty clear that the West is responsible for the dire state of the Russian economy. The Kremlin will, might now start saying this proves that we were right all along. The West is out to get us. We were doing the small scale military operation and look what they've done to us. They've destroyed our economy. They're sending us back into the 90s, uh, an era that, um, that many Russians were happy that they, they got past. Uh, they're uh, excluding um, Russians from um, exporting events and music events and um, the ability to interact with, um, internationally. And they can use this now to uh, create the sense of a siege mentality and... Um, and again, to, to vindicate themselves that really this was all a plot against Russia to begin with. Will it work? It might work. Um, at the longer the war drags on, though, the harder it will be to maintain that posture. Scott Radnitz, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. Well, we've been talking a lot about the one million Ukrainians who've already fled war in their country tonight. But it also brings back memories of perhaps a decade ago, or at least the last decade, of the devastating impact that another war had and continues to have. Since 2011, nearly 7 million Syrians, 7 million, have fled that country, many remaining in neighboring countries, but approximately 75,000 now call Canada home. It's one thing to know, to watch people leave a war. It's another to know what it's like to leave home. And how have they been impacted by this new influx of images of war and mass movement and families divided, people leaving their country, looking for a new place to go? Joining me now is Leila Kadir, a student at the British Columbia Institute of Technology who fled the war in Syria and now lives here in Vancouver. Leila, thank you so much for being here tonight. Thank you for having me. I was going to just, I, I was reading, there was a, a lovely article written about, about you and, and, and your journey to come here. And I guess it all began in 2011 in Aleppo with a particular incident that, uh, that to convinced your family it was time to leave. Mm, right. What was that? Um, so I, I'm Syrian. I'm from Aleppo, which is northern Syria. Um, mm-hmm. When we were there, there was like an explosion that happened just few meters away uh, from our place uh, the, the the glass was, like the window was broken it fell on right. my sister's arm uh, we couldn't even take her to, the, to a doctor you know um, everything was closed there was a lockdown um, uh, the, the situation was uh, I'm sorry to say but it was horrible it was devastating um, right. and like remembering this moment is for me uh, it is overwhelming. It's so hard, right. and I'm I sure. just I can't get over it. So you decided that was I, I gather that you you decided it was time to leave, and you went you went to Egypt, right? And and what was it like? I mean, I, I talk about this as much as you can, but and if you can't, then I'll ask you about your life in Egypt after that. But do you remember leaving Aleppo? Do you remember when you packed your bags and 
Yeah. So every like every day we were prepared. We we put all our stuff in, in our bags um, at the entrance of our place, uh, just preparing ourselves that we might leave in like in a second. Uh, we need to be prepared 24 hours to leave our country. Um, and when we went to Egypt, it wasn't like the best uh, quality of life, let me say. Um, our financial situation uh, was like, it, it, it wasn't the best. Um, we lived in very poor apartment and, and very poor life, let me say. Um I went, like, before in Syria, I used to study in English schools. Um, right. I studied in, like, American schools, and that's how I learned English. But when I went to Egypt, uh, we didn't have that money to, to even uh, study in, in appropriate schools, let me say. Um, and then my mom decided to work 24 hours a day. Um, she, she decided to open her small business cooking Syrian food and sell that to people. Um, but unfortunately, after that, she was diagnosed with breast cancer. Um, she had to stop working, um, but she didn't. She fought uh, and she's still fighting. Uh, she wanted to educate us, to teach us. And yeah. So leaving home, because, you know, a lot of Canadians, as you know, now that you live here, a lot of Canadians have no idea what it's like mm -hmm. to leave, uh, it is, to pack it up, to have, your, to have your whole life. Yeah, sorry, go ahead, Layla. Uh, so I was saying it is hard to, to leave your home, to leave your neighborhood, uh, your friends, your family, um, to leave all these things behind you and go to a different country, a country that speaks different language of yours. Um, right. have different cultures of yours. So it, it is absolutely the, the, the hardest thing in, in the life, you know. I know that you went back, I believe you went back to Aleppo. <clears throat> in, in, is, is that right? In 2017, you went back for a visit? Yeah, I went to visit my family and say our goodbyes to my uh, grandma. Um, uh, unfortunately, I, I, I can't forget the scene. <laughs> It was shocking. Um, the the city was like destroyed. Um, the buildings were on the ground. Um, I can see dead bodies uh, left behind the war. Uh, there was no electricity, no water. Um, the, like even the internet, we can use the internet like two hours a day, and that's it. Um, and we had to to stay in the dark with no light because there's no electricity, as I said. Um, right. <clears throat> so I guess at that point, just for listeners, a reminder that in the summer of 2016, that was when uh, the government, Bashar al-Assad's government forces really launched a, an all-out attack, an all-out air raid or air bombardment of Aleppo that pretty much destroyed what was one of the world's most beautiful cities uh, before then. I guess I'm just thinking of all the Ukrainians leaving home now too and thinking about you leaving home. And um, when you went back, I guess you realized that you were never going to go back. Yeah, I actually, I asked my mom um, to leave at Aleppo earlier. Uh, so I only stayed a few days and I decided to go back to Egypt. I just, I couldn't live there. Um, like simple things as showering, um, taking a shower in, in cold water, uh, 
during like the the winter so i i just couldn't tolerate the the life here um and i feel so sorry that my family has to still go through this till now they're still in syria um and they're they're facing those issues every day yeah because people the the, the 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 conflict in syria is far from over and it still exists right we we sometimes don't talk about it as much as we did for a while but it's certainly still going on and obviously you're, you 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 have family there still mm-hmm. yeah tell um, me about a bit about oh sorry go ahead no it's fine i <laughs> I, I, I want to say i just like i have uh, my aunt i have uh, uh, my my uncle there uh, i have my cousins um and they are all um like struggling with the war that is still going right do you find do you i mean now that there's been so much attention to this latest war do you feel like at times people have forgotten about what's going on in syria i don't think this is something that we can we can forget um mm-hmm. uh, what what syria went through is is really hard stressful um it is overwhelming as i said uh the the war is still ongoing people are still being killed uh the the unemployment rate went went like it increased um and even like let me say the goods uh people can get their their groceries because the life expenses uh, are not t- tolerable so um yeah. it's not a thing that we can forget i really want to ask you about coming to canada and what it's like to be new here and trying to build a new life in a new country i did want to ask you before we before we take a quick uh, a quick break i want to ask you a bit about what you've seen when you watch people from other conflicts like in ukraine now fleeing if you what goes through your mind when you see people leaving because you know what it's like to leave yeah of course so it's watching those those clips about people fleeing leaving their countries um it re-traumatized what we've we've been through um and i can feel i can feel them i can feel like what they're feeling right now um it, it is hard for everyone and no one would choose um a war you know so no. no one would choose to, to leave their country. Um, I was happy in Syria. Uh, we had home. Um, we had a safe place to live in. Um, I, I had my family. I, I lived uh, with them. I grew up with them. Um, I went to school. I had friends. Um, and then all of a sudden, I, like, I had to leave all this behind me. Um, it, it is hard. I miss them. Um, I'm just like, I'm looking forward to take uh, the citizenship so I can visit my, my family there because I, I really, I, I want to meet them again. I'm back with Leila Khadir, a student, I should say a broadcast journalism student um, at BCIT here in, in Vancouver and uh, a woman who fled the war in Syria uh, more than a decade ago now, and now lives in Vancouver. We've been talking a bit about just the mass migration of people leaving Ukraine because of the conflict, the millions who left Syria, including Alela and her family and her mom uh, back when. And and 
I want to ask you about settling down here because I think you also know today we've announced new programs to try to bring more Ukrainians to Canada. You know the challenges that exist in settling into a new country, a new and unfamiliar culture, an unfamiliar place. How has it been for you? So let me explain you the, the scene. Um, I remember when we landed Canada, um, we were on our way to the ISS of BC uh, Welcome Center, uh, which is in Victoria Drive, Vancouver. Um, I saw all this great nature on the road. I, I was impressed. I said, oh, my God, finally, finally, I arrived here. Um, we've applied for like to, to travel Canada uh, like for three years waiting the, the acceptance and then we got it um, we went to the welcome center uh, they gave us some orientations on how to to live in Canada how to um, embrace the Canadian society um, and then we, we lived let me say in happiness for, for one year uh, the, we were on a government assistance, but after that, I realized there are lots to deal with um, in terms of the Canadian experience. Uh, me re-study everything. Uh, I had bachelor's right. in journalism back in Egypt, and then when I came here, they told me all my academic credits were not transferable. They are invalid because I, I studied in Arabic. Um, right. As well as for, for my dad, he doesn't have the language um, and it's hard to learn it in his age. Um, even like the government is providing link classes, which is in English classes for immigrants, but they're actually teaching people how to live in Canada more than focusing on the English language itself. Um, so it wasn't beneficial for him. Um, he's now unemployed because, as I said, he doesn't have the language, he doesn't have the Canadian experience. Um, so it, it's not only uh, in terms of the financial situation for immigrants, um, feeling included. Uh, this is the part where we are missing. Um, I really want to celebrate my celebrations, the, the celebrations that we used to, to have in, in our culture, let's say Ramadan, uh, right. Eid, uh, we, we don't see that in, in Vancouver, in BC specifically. We don't see uh, people greeting us or say happy Eid for us. Um, right. So I'm about to get the Canadian citizenship, and to be honest, I don't, I don't feel included yet. Not yet. It's interesting. I think, you know, it, it's, it's always, a, I mean, it's a struggle for countries to, to figure out how best to help people, um, to, to allow people to feel like they can both be who they are and be here too. And congratulations, by the way, on your Canadian citizenship. Um, where do you, what would you like to, where do you, or I guess what advice would you give to people coming into this country with their eyes wide open, seeing the mountains like you did, thinking, wow, this is great. And then you realize, you know what? This is this is still going to be really difficult because I'm not home. I've had to leave home, and now I'm somewhere. I'm in someone. I'm in a new country. Just don't have high expectation. Uh, study the language. Um, I was lucky enough to speak English, although I have to I, like I had to study English, of course. Uh, but uh, some people 
uh, didn't have this chance or this opportunity. Uh, so I would say start taking English classes, um, prepare yourself that this is not we 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 used to live in. Uh, people might not know what like what your celebrations are, what is your culture, or even what is your country. Like I, sometimes I say, like I'm from Syria, and people would say, "What is Syria?" So just like uh, don't don't have high expectation from anything. Um, uh, it's it, Canada is far country, so. Uh, expect the time zone differences yeah. and yeah what what uh we only have about a minute i could talk to you all night layla but we only have about a minute and a half left what what are your plans for the next i know you're you're going to graduate from broadcast journalism school what would you like your future to be like in this country um i really want to be a video journalist um and i want to graduate um and i want my mom to feel proud of me um I've always loved to be a video journalist. Um so I'm, I'm preparing myself for that although I know I have an accent <laughs> so I might not get hired right away. Oh but... your English is your English is fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah. Um you know, I, I, again, we've been talking about this, uh, just obviously watching scenes of people fleeing. You know, I, I really want to, I really thank you for sharing your time and your story with us. Uh, obviously, I wish you the best of luck. I hope you feel um, like a Canadian, whatever that means. I hope, I hope you feel that way. Uh, My pleasure, Ben. I'll, Thanks I'll, for having me. And I, yeah, and I wish your mom health and your father peace and happiness as well, and your family back in Syria safety as well. Thank you so much. 